Good morning and welcome to the Spine and Nerve Diagnostic Center's Pain Management Podcast. My name is Dr. Brian Hovez. And my name is Dr. Nicholas Carvelis. And uh, today uh, we want to discuss <clears throat> a very important uh, treatment option in the setting of uh, chronic uh, pain, especially uh, chronic uh, moderate to severe refractory pain um, that has not been responding to our uh, typical approaches um, uh, to treatment. And this uh, treatment option is uh, buprenorphine. Bupro what? <laughs> uh, buprenorphine. So um, I wanted to uh, start <clears throat> by uh, giving the uh, definition of buprenorphine. We'll go into some of the pharmacology of the medication, but I really wanted to uh, focus on the safety of buprenorphine relative to other opioid medications um, because ultimately, although there is no safe medication, as we know, even Tylenol and ibuprofen have potential side effects uh, and adverse effects for patients. Um, if, if, if it gets to the point where an opioid medication uh, is considered and or if a patient is on high dose opioids and you are trying to uh, get them to a safer alternative as you continue to work to optimize other non-opioid uh, treatment options, uh, buprenorphine is a uh, relatively uh, appropriate and uh, relatively significantly safer option. <clears throat> so uh, starting out with the definition, so as we know, <clears throat> there are three uh, naturally uh, occurring uh, opiates, um, those being morphine, codeine, and thebane. Uh, buprenorphine is a semi-synthetic derivative of the opiate uh, thebane. So um, uh, in terms of the uh, pharmacology of buprenorphine, um, importantly, it's metabolized in the liver through the CYP3A4 uh, system. Uh, and uh, as I said, importantly, it's primarily eliminated in the stool, um, meaning that uh, about 10 to 30% is actually excreted in the urine, but um, upwards of uh, 70 to 90% is eliminated in the stool. This uh, leads into the fact that buprenorphine is uh, um, uh, significantly safer in patients with compromised renal function. Um, in fact, I can say clinically myself, I've used it uh, for patients on hemodialysis uh, with, uh, with uh, severe pain and had um, a significant improvement in their uh, function and quality of life. Um, and it's also safer in patients with liver disease. Um, so for our sick patients with severe chronic pain uh, on dialysis or with uh, significant liver problems, um, this is a consideration, uh, especially again, as I kind of emphasize in two different settings. One, if kind of all other options have been exhausted and you're considering uh, the use of an opioid and or if a patient is already on high dose opioids and you're looking for a safer option. Um, those are kind of the two major arenas where you you may be considering this medication and it would be appropriate to be considering this medication. In terms of the method of administration, so this medication can be given um, uh, transdermally, uh, sublingually, um, or uh, bucally. Um, <clears throat> uh, the, some of the major um, formulations of this medication include uh, Subutex uh, or Suboxone, um, as well as Belbuca and uh, Butrans. So real quickly in terms of those different uh, for, uh, formulations. So Butrans is a transdermal um, uh, form of uh, buprenorphine. And uh, this medication can be effective for patients that are opioid naive uh, or for patients on uh, upwards of 80 oral morphine equivalents per 24 hours. 
once the uh, once the <clears throat> once the patient gets over 80 oral morphine equivalents, the utilization of uh, butrans is probably not appropriate or going to be effective at that um, at that stage. Uh, Belbuca um, can come into play once the patient's over 80 oral morphine equivalents um, in terms of transitioning uh, to that medication. Um, but once you get over uh, uh, 200 oral morphine equivalents, you probably need to be starting to think about the utilization of uh, sublingual um, subutex or suboxone. Um, the, the reason for that <coughs> is because with these uh, formulations, the butrans being the transdermal, the belbuca being the uh, buccal, and then the subutex or suboxone being the sublingual, um, they have different ranges in terms of the uh, degree of pain um, that they can treat and or um, uh, given the, um, the uh, opioid uh, tolerance that the patient has developed, the opioid requirements that the patient has developed, you may need to consider um, uh, different um, uh, formulations of the buprenorphine. <clears throat> One thing that I think is important to emphasize uh, to uh, patients is that buprenorphine is FDA approved for treatment of chronic pain. So a lot of times when patients hear the word buprenorphine, they may go look it up and they'll find suboxone. Um, and suboxone obviously um, has its home in addiction medicine and it has done uh, um, uh, quite a lot of positive uh, things and, and had a very positive uh, impact on a lot of patients' lives in uh, the field of addiction medicine. And um, suboxone can still be utilized uh, for patients um, that uh, are on very high dose opioids and you are considering uh, uh, transitioning to a safer medication and ultimately trying to continue a taper down. Um, uh, but for many patients, they may look at that and say, hey, look, I'm not addicted to my medicine. And they may feel like they're being um, typecasted into a certain uh, role. Um, so I think in those situations, it can be very uh, powerful and, and, and uh, important to emphasize that, um, that this medication is also treating their pain and it's FDA approved for the treatment of uh, pain. So that's one of the things that we're focusing on is improving their symptoms, improving their function, improving their quality of life and their health. And if that uh, is emphasized to the patient that that is the, the focus of what we're doing, then I think it is uh, better accepted uh, overall. <clears throat> so uh, a little bit of um, uh, information in terms of buprenorphine's interaction with uh, opioid receptors. So buprenorphine has a very distinct uh, profile. Um, in regards to its interaction with uh, opioid receptors. And it's very different from full mu opioid uh, receptor agonists that we're familiar with, morphine, codeine, fentanyl, uh, methadone, norco, percocet, um, hydrocodone, oxycodone. So <clears throat> some of these unique characteristics of buprenorphine include that it is a potent partial agonist of the mu opioid receptor. Buprenorphine has a very high affinity but low intrinsic activity. Um, it's half-life of dissociation, uh, oh, sorry, <clears throat> it's half-life of association and dissociation is two to five hours. And this slow dissociation helps with its prolonged uh, therapeutic effects. <clears throat> um, so 
going uh, back a little bit to uh, how uh, potent of a partial agonist uh, buprenorphine is, um, when considering uh, the conversion um, from one opioid medication to buprenorphine, some of the conversions that, because you will find many different conversions out there. The conversion that I personally use comes out of a study by Dr. Holtzman um, at UC Davis Medical Center, which was a ratio of eight milligrams of sublingual buprenorphine to 100 uh, milligrams of uh, morphine. Now, that being said, you will find a lot of uh, different um, conversions out there. One of the reasons I like this conversion is that it um, has been <laughs> demonstrated to be effective and safe uh, through uh, uh, research, and um, it helps in terms of underdosing uh, during, during this conversion. As we know, buprenorphine is relatively significantly safer compared to full-mu opioid agonists for multiple reasons, including that it has a respiratory ceiling in regards to respiratory depression. Um, so you can be a little bit more aggressive with your conversion, uh, and by do, using this ratio of 8 to a 100, we can help avoid the uh, concern for the, um, uh, for the um, uh, withdrawal, uh, the precipitated withdrawal that was so well documented uh, previously, especially in um, addiction medicine. Uh, there was always the theory that patients should be stopped for their full mu opioid um, and then waited until you were actually showing signs of mild withdrawal prior to initiating the buprenorphine to avoid a severe precipitated withdrawal. That is still a very reasonable approach um, if that is what you would like to utilize, but I can tell you um, from my own clinical experience, uh, if you do use a conversion such as this 8 to 100, you can do more of a 12-hour to 24-hour uh, window and then do the conversion. And some of that precipitated withdrawal may have been uh, more so underdosing the patient. Um, although we still recognize, thinking about the basic science of it, we know that buprenorphine has a very strong affinity for the receptor and, and will kick off the, um, the opioid that's in the patient's body. So it's definitely possible that there may still be some withdrawal from that specific full mu opioid agonist. Um, but like I said, with this conversion and then based on uh, clinical experience and, and the uh, research that's now out there, um, if we can avoid underdosing to some degree, then we can avoid some of that precipitated withdrawal. And it can be a little bit more of a uh, less uh, strenuous um, and uh, uh, uncomfortable uh, or <clears throat> unpleasant experience for the patient in terms of transitioning from a full mu opioid to buprenorphine. So <clears throat> I wanted to now uh, turn uh, our attention to the safety of buprenorphine versus other um, opioids. So one of the most important is obviously buprenorphine and respiratory depression. So as we know, respiratory, depressions and, uh, respiratory depression in opioids is mediated through the mu opioid receptor with full agonists uh, demonstrating a clear dose-dependent effect at higher doses, <clears throat> um, especially when combined with um, other CNS depressants uh, leading to uh, apnea and uh, potentially death. Um, buprenorphine has a ceiling effect on respiratory depression and the research that's available to this, uh, to this uh, date uh, would suggest that buprenorphine does not drop the respiratory rate below 50% of uh, baseline and it remains one of the safest opioids in that regards. <clears throat> I just wanted to um, 
there, there, are, there are multiple studies out there, but one example uh, is a study by <coughs> um, Dr. Da Dahan uh, and colleagues in 2006, which essentially took 20 healthy subjects, uh, 10 of those subjects receiving uh, 0.2 mg per 70 kg dose of buprenorphine, and then the other sub 10 subjects receiving 0.4 mg per uh, 70 kg dose. And they were monitoring the minute ventilation, which as we know is a function of tidal volume respiratory rate. And essentially what they found was that as they increased the dose of uh, buprenorphine, the degree of analgesia that was uh, obtained continued to increase in a dose-dependent fashion, while the uh, degree of respiratory depression um, uh, stabilized and plateaued and wound up being uh, similar for the uh, two doses, the higher dose and the lower dose, demonstrating the ceiling effect um, on respiratory depression but not on analgesia. <clears throat> so the um, all that being said, I also want to make sure it's important that we emphasize that uh, no medication is completely without risk, and really there's no completely safe dose of any medication. So um, we still need to be cautious with buprenorphine because we know it can produce some level of respiratory depression, even though it has a uh, respiratory ceiling. Um, and if when combined with benzodiazepines, you can still get life-threatening respiratory depression. So um, it is definitely not uh, a situation where, oh, I can prescribe buprenorphine and a benzo because I know that buprenorphine has a respiratory ceiling. That is not the case. Um, uh, com combining benzo and benzodiazepine and buprenorphine can still be a, a fatal uh, outcome. Um, <clears throat> to drive that home, uh, you know, the evidence that we have um, alluded to has led to conclusions such as this consensus statement from an international expert panel that was published in Pain Practice Journal in 2008. Uh, it stated that the evidence suggests that buprenorphine is a relatively safer option for patients, especially those at risk for respiratory depression. Nevertheless, the combination of buprenorphine and sedative uh, medications, including benzodiazepines and alcohol, have been reported to lead to adverse respiratory depression. So although buprenorphine in combination uh, with substances such as benzo may be safer, um, it, uh, uh, caution still needs to be um, uh, very much exercised. <clears throat> so <clears throat> some of the other uh, uh, safety aspects or less um, side effects, uh, less adverse effects um, of uh, buprenorphine. I want to go over quickly here. So constipation, obviously we know that's a huge issue with uh, patients on um, full mu opioid agonists. So uh, buprenorphine has been um, demonstrated to uh, have significantly less um, constipation compared to full mu opioid agonists. As an example, um, there was a study by Dr. Liker and colleagues in 2003 um, that found that the incidence of uh, constipation for uh, butrans, the transdermal, transdermal formulation of buprenorphine was 5.3%, which would already be significantly improved relative to full mu opioid agonists. And what was interesting was that in the post-marketing surveillance studies published in 2005, by Dr. Greisinger found that uh, the, the incidence of constipation was actually even lower uh, at around 1%, which is, um, uh, which is a very uh, good thing, especially in our elderly patients where um, constipation can be a major issue. <coughs> um, now, um, in terms of uh, some of the other things I want to emphasize was buprenorphine and our endocrine system um, and our hormones. So, <coughs> uh, 
as we know, uh, foamy opioid agonists can have a major um, uh, impact on our uh, endocrine system. Um, for example, uh, as just one example, um, uh, uh, foamy opioid, chronic use of foamy opioids have been uh, demonstrated to have a, a significant uh, uh, impact on hypogonadism. Uh, for example, in men, it can drop testosterone levels down into the basement very low. Um, in contrast, <laughs> buprenorphine, through multiple uh, studies, has uh, been demonstrated to uh, not significantly suppress plasma testosterone um, at the same level as a full mu opioid uh, would. Um, <laughs> uh, buprenorphine and depression. So, um, as we know, full mu opioids uh, have the capability of uh, causing and worsening uh, depression in our patients who oftentimes with chronic pain are already uh, depressed. Um, so what's very interesting about buprenorphine is that it actually has been demonstrated to treat depression. So there was a study done in 2014 by Dr. Jordan and colleagues that showed <coughs> that um, they took patients who had an average depression score um, of around uh, 27 and that decreased to 9.5 over an eight-week period of treatment with uh, buprenorphine. So um, the next topic I wanted to discuss uh, was in regards to uh, um, opioid tolerance. So that is always a concern in patients who are on chronic full mu opioids. Um, and uh, what we have uh, found through studies is that uh, buprenorphine does not seem to develop the same level of tolerance that uh, other uh, opioids would. Um, as an example, uh, there was a study by Dr. Sattel uh, and colleagues in 2005, which uh, showed <coughs> that comparing doses of transdermal fentanyl and transdermal buprenorphine in patients with both cancer and uh, non-cancer uh, pain, that the uh, relative dose increase in fentanyl that was required to still maintain a uh, level of uh, pain control um, that dose increase in fentanyl was significantly higher um, uh, in both groups, the non-cancer pain and the cancer pain compared to the dose increase in buprenorphine. As an example, in the non-cancer group, um, the uh, change in the fentanyl um, uh, dosing over, uh, uh, over a course of several years was 0.25% increase versus a 0.09% on average increase in uh, buprenorphine. <clears throat> so, um, the, in summary, uh, and I, you know, the, the safety of buprenorphine is included but not limited to some of the things I have just mentioned. Um, one of the other uh, key aspects of buprenorphine is that it does not seem to cause the same level of hyperalgesia, uh, uh, opioid-induced um, uh, opioid hyperalgesia, or a relative lowering of the pain threshold over time with use of full mu opioids. Um, we do not seem to get that same effect uh, with the use of buprenorphine. So what a, a lot of times when patients come in and they are on chronic full mu opioids, one of the things I will always tell them is that um, there is a large focus on uh, tolerance, dependence, uh, addiction, and death that occurs with opioids. Um, and that's very important. And obviously that's one of the reasons that we want to uh, continue to optimize the safety uh, the safety and the effectiveness of your medication regimen. Um, 
But for a lot of patients, they will look at you and in their head, they will be like, look, I'm not addicted to this. I've been on this medication and I haven't been dying. So they're going to kind of shut you out, um, unfortunately, oftentimes. Uh, so after I state that, after I state that I know there's a lot of emphasis on tolerance, dependence, addiction, and death, and that's very important for us to continue to consider, I bridge to um, the fact that um, I tell them, look, information is power. I want you to have as much information as possible about these medications so you can be making an informed decision about your own health. And there are other long-term risks of opioids that uh, don't get as much um, spotlight. And those include, but aren't limited to, uh, increased risk of stroke and heart attack, especially in women, and especially in the setting of combination medications, the Tylenol plus uh, uh, opioid, um, suppress chronic suppression of the immune system, um, which potentially, since our immune system is what helps fight cancer, if we're on these opioids chronically, potentially could lead to increased risk of cancer. Um, significantly altering hormone levels, uh, and I, especially if it's a man, I bring up the hypogonadism and the lowering of testosterone and the impact that, that uh, can have on them, um, causing and worsening depression. And then importantly, um, as we know, and there's conflicting evidence out there, but um, we've definitely, I'm sure we've all seen this clinically, is that over time, and it has nothing to necessarily do with the patient, but the science behind it, as we use opioids chronically, the pain threshold can be lowered um, so that things that usually would cause pain are causing more pain and things that uh, wouldn't be causing pain are starting to cause uh, pain. Um, and uh, with buprenorphine, we know that um, there can be uh, significantly less uh, of those um, uh, long uh, of those long term uh, negative effects. Not again, not to say it's a perfect medication by any stretch of the um, imagination, and still it is an opioid medication with risk, and therefore um, we should still exhaust all other uh, non opioid uh, treatments uh, before utilizing it. Um, but again, for patients that are either on high-dose opioids that you're looking for a safer alternative and or uh, for patients that you have truly exhausted all of their options and their function, their quality of life and health are really suffering and you are looking for an option while you continue to optimize the diagnosis and other non-opioid treatments, um, buprenorphine could be a reasonable um, option uh, if used appropriately and safely. Um, with those different formulations that we mentioned, the transdermal, the buccal, and the sublingual. Just uh, once again for everybody, can you go over the actual brand names of each of those? Because you know, like you said earlier, I think the easy assumption is that all forms of buprenorphine are suboxone. And suboxone, you know, as you've already mentioned, has uh, the connotation of being the new age methadone. So uh, can you talk about the, uh, once again those, the other formulations? Yeah, so there's many different formulations of buprenorphine. The ones that I think we would use commonly clinically, uh, especially in the outpatient setting, would be, uh, first off, the transdermal um, form, which would be butrans. Um, and that, like I said, could be used in your opioid-naive patients or for patients who are upwards of 80 oral morphine equivalents. It comes in um, a 5 mic per hour, 7.5 mic per hour, uh, 10 mic per hour, 15 mic per hour, and a 20 mic per hour patch. Um, uh, obviously, <clears throat> the 20 mic per hour patch is going to be the one that you utilize up to uh, uh, 80 oral morphine equivalents. Um, the 
uh, patch, the nice thing about it is it lasts for about a week. So you, the patient can just put it on and change it once a week. You only need four patches for about a month or 28 day supply. That's the transdermal for the next uh, level up in terms of uh, potency. Um, uh, that's Belbuca, which is the buccal form. Um, it comes in a film that's put in the buccal uh, space, and uh, that's a Q12 um, hour uh, formulation, so you would need 60 for a month. Um, and uh, yeah, so the buccal is the Belbuca is the, uh, the na uh, trade name for that. And then the uh, sublingual form uh, is Subutex. Um, there's also obviously Suboxone, which includes buprenorphine plus naloxone, but um, Subutex is the, is the buprenorphine uh, alone uh, formulation of, of that. And um, that uh, uh, is given sublingual. It can be from two milligrams to eight milligrams sublingual. Um, and that is for patients who are on uh, much higher doses or require much higher levels of uh, analgesia, especially potentially in the realm of uh, cancer-associated pain. Um, so, <clears throat> uh, yeah. So are, are Subutex and Suboxone essentially similar, except for having some of the anti-deterrent? The abuse, uh, yeah, the abuse, abuse deterrent, correct, yeah. Okay, so I think probably that's some interesting information, because obviously, like I said, everybody understands or has heard of at this point Suboxone, uh, but knowing that Subutex is a very similar uh, medication, uh, just minus the abuse deterrence of it, I think is, is an interesting uh, anecdote for for us to emphasize in the treatment of patients living with chronic pain. And uh, the last thing I'll say is that um, Butrans and Belbuca are FDA approved for the treatment of chronic pain and can be utilized as such. Um, Subutex uh, would be being used off-label, um, but the way you could uh, uh, the way you could do that and what I've done clinically is on your prescription, you just make sure that you very, and in your documentation in your note, uh, you very much specify that I am utilizing this for the treatment of chronic pain. Um, and uh, like I said, just make sure that's documented very well in your note as well. Awesome. Well, thank you, Dr. Carvelis, for such an amazing overview of buprenorphine. Uh, this is a uh, hot topic in the area of chronic pain management, and hopefully this will help everybody to understand it a little bit better and understand uh, the appropriateness uh, for patients. Uh, once again, uh, as with all things that we discuss, this is not meant to be medical advice. Uh, this is only information uh, and an evaluation of medical literature. Uh, please discuss with your provider if uh, you want to discuss something along these lines for treatment for you. Uh, otherwise, uh, that's all we have for today and hope everybody has a great rest of your day. See you later. Uh, goodbye. Now for that legal disclaimer. This podcast is for information and educational purposes only. It is not meant to be medical advice. If anything discussed may pertain to you, please seek counsel with your healthcare provider. The views expressed are those of the individuals expressing them. They may not represent the views of Spine and Nerve Diagnostic Center.